Ukraine is a mess. Don't blame Donald Trump for that. Well, you know, one minute. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh, and I'm also here in Belgium. Today, we are talking to our colleague, Marco Prelitz. Marco is Crisis Group's Balkan specialist, and we have dragged him into a podcast recording because we've just published a report called Relaunching the Kosovo-Serbia Dialogue about what is to be done, what is the art of the possible in very long-standing often stalled, and in the last year, sort of maybe restarted negotiations between Serbia and Kosovo, which has been de facto independent of Serbia for quite some time now, but which Serbia continues to claim as its own territory. So thank you, Marco, for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Talk to us about why we're publishing this report now. What are we saying in it? Sure. We've got basically two main points. The first is that there's this dialogue between Kosovo and Serbia, which has been going on for about 10 years now and is pretty much dead in the water. The problems the dialogue is meant to resolve are serious ones, sort of very serious ones, that if left to fester can be dangerous and it's not moving in a convincing way toward a conclusion. So we've got in one part of the report an analysis of why that is the way it is and some ideas about how to get it moving again and get it to arrive at its destination to resolve the problem between the two. And the other half of the report is more realistic, maybe less optimistic. And it starts from the premise that for a number of reasons, it looks like none of that is likely to happen anytime soon. And we may be forced to live with the problem. And so we're looking at some kind of plan B type ideas about what can be done to make the near to medium term future a less unpalatable place to spend time for the countries in the region, especially for Kosovo, which bears the brunt of this particular impasse. So why is this so hard? I mean, the Balkans wars of the 90s were ugly and bloody and horrifying as the experiment that was Yugoslavia that everyone thought was a tremendous success of interethnic cooperation fell apart in the ugliest imaginable way. But it's been a while, right? And all these independent countries emerged from what had been Yugoslavia. Why is it such a problem here? Well, there's an old reason and a new reason. Let me maybe start with a new one. And that is just that Kosovo declared its independence, for lack of a better word, unilaterally. So without the permission of its parent state, Serbia, in 2008. A whole lot of reasons why it did that. It was not alone. So it was accompanied by, if you will, the United States and most of the European Union. There was a consensus in that part of the world that this had to be done. But not Serbia, okay? So and whenever you have a country or a part of a country breaking away, we saw this most recently in Western Europe with Catalonia and surprisingly muscular response that Madrid took toward what was a totally nonviolent and in some ways even unserious attempt to break away. You can see how seriously people take this. So there's that. And the old part is that Kosovo, for better or for worse, and I'm talking now about in geographic terms, just the part of the world that's called Kosovo is where Serbia used to be in the Middle Ages. 
So that's where some of its most sacred and most emotional history took place, where the Serbian Orthodox Church had some of its first and most beautiful churches and monasteries, its saints from there, its patriarchate was down there. And of course, they lost the famous battle to Turkey, where they lost the independence of their medieval state in Kosovo. So it's just something that every Serb has learned about from childhood. It is very emotional for them, and that makes it hard to. I'm getting shades of Kiev and Rus here, only much more intense. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a little about the Kosovar side of the story? I mean, the first time I met the Kosovar Albanians was standing in the mountains of Albania as they poured over the border, terrified. And there was the NATO bombing had just started and the war was in progress. And I guess the last thing we were discussing with them was the future parameters of the Kosovo state. But uh, can you just update us on what's happened to those refugees? What kind of country is Kosovo today? Sure. Uh, let me... Uh... Uh, you remind me, actually, Hugh, I was not there at the time, but I was monitoring that. I was with prosecutor's office in The Hague, and we were working in a blitzkrieg fashion on indicting Serbian authorities for that very thing. I remember watching these scenes of Serbian authorities burning huge piles of documents, personal documents that they were confiscating from those refugees. And the chilling thought was that they did not want anyone to know what had happened that it was possible that they had killed many people. Of course, they actually had killed a great many, but we didn't know how many at the time. It's good to remember that when we're talking about this. There was enormous human suffering. But to answer your question, Kosovo is a country now. Majority population are Kosovo Albanians who consider themselves Albanians. So they don't see themselves as foreigners to the Albanians in Albania, but they are their own country. Okay, They have a distinct identity and they have built a distinct set of national institutions with the support of, of the United States and the European Union over the years. And it is a functioning state. It looks just like any other state, except that it's not fully recognized. That's the problem. It's not in the United Nations. It cannot be in the European Union. It cannot be in NATO because there are countries in both those institutions that don't recognize it. So life is just a lot more complicated for them for those reasons, and they resent it. They are the only people in Europe now, I think, who need a visa to travel to the EU, which is frankly bizarre. So there's lots and lots of these things. And the visa goes into what kind of passport? It goes into a Kosovo passport, which everyone accepts. Even the people who don't recognize it? People who don't recognize it will also, yeah, they will let you in with a visa. Of course, if you have a Schengen visa, you know, you can just go to Schengen, right? Schengen land. No, I think it's always really interesting to think about how all these niceties of international law affect actual human beings who are trying to travel to see family, to do their jobs to do business and, you know, kind of these vagaries of being from a place that some people recognize as one thing and others as another is always just fascinating to me. So what determines for other countries in the world whether they recognize Kosovo as independent, what their position is on this continuing situation? Well, the way I would answer that is that uh, I think a neutral position would be to say, it, it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, you know, it looks independent, it acts independent, it's independent. So you need a reason to say no. And there's a couple of different reasons people have. There's friendship with Serbia, and there's also concern over a precedent. That's the reason for Spain, for example. Spain has, for a long time, I guess, they're more concerned about the Basque country, they have Catalonia, many other parts of Cyprus has northern Cyprus. And then there are a lot of countries in the world, especially this is true further away from Europe, that are legitimists and that were just invested in a certain sort of austere and rigorous version of international law and that wants to see all the T's crossed and the I's dotted 
a lot of these countries that were part of the non-aligned movement, for those of us who remember that back in the day, that were also friendly with Yugoslavia through that. And they just say, sorry, you didn't do it right. You've got to go back and do a makeover. And is there a makeover that they could do? I mean, is that something that's on the table, a different approach to declaring independence? It would be very hard to imagine. The phrase that Serbia likes to use for Kosovo's Declaration of Independence is the UDI, the Unilateral Declaration of Independence. Hugh, you may recall, has a certain historical resonance in Africa. Rhodesia's UDI was in fact rolled back, and that was the Serbian idea that they would do a Rhodesia, that they would get Kosovo to say, sorry, we're not independent for like a day, and then they would have a force to make that concession. They would then let them go. That's not going to happen. Marco, given this really mixed response around the world, I'm surprised that anyone is consistently pushing for a solution to help these Kosovars. I mean, which countries are actively trying to solve this and get an understanding between Kosovo and Serbia? And which ones are really putting spanners in the works? And has something really changed since 2008? Yeah, good question, Hugh. That's a European project, mainly. In some ways, it goes back to something that is important to the European, and I mean here, Brussels European, so European Union European self-understanding that we are an actor on the world stage on a par with Russia, China, the United States. And the way that we will show that, first of all, is by showing that we can manage our immediate neighborhood, especially the obstreperous Balkans. That has not worked out all that well in the past, but it is important to Europe to be able to do it. So they are driving this dialogue process, and they are also driving the Kosovo's attempts to set itself up, to build its institutions to the point that they're fully self-sustaining. So over the last year, there actually has been activity, um, arguably not very productive in the end, which wasn't uh, European-initiated. Can you talk a little bit about what happened and why it happened and why it didn't work? Yes, that was very weird. <laughs> like so many other things that were coming out of the United States for the past four years. <laughs> yeah, what had happened was that for years, Brussels was hosting a dialogue, okay? And that dialogue was a baby steps dialogue, okay? So the idea was basically to borrow a phrase from Catholicism, first you must kneel and then you will believe eventually after you get used to the going through the motions. So Serbia, we can't make you recognize Kosovo, but we can make you go through the motions of acting like you do. Make it till you make it. That was the idea. That actually had made some progress. Okay, so they set up a border, which works like a normal border. Okay, Serbia says, well, we don't recognize it as a border, but if you just drive through there, you cannot tell that it's not a border. Borderization, but good. I mean, again, I see so many parallels to things that happened elsewhere where they're bad, right? With separatist parts of former Soviet countries, borderization is bad. Here it's good. Yeah. Well, here it was deliberately done and it went good. It cut down on smuggling. It was just good in all kinds of different ways. They kind of reached the end of what they can do through that, faking it till you make it. And because now they, they've got to the point they actually need to get Kosovo into the UN and into a whole bunch of other international bodies and they can't do that. While the, Europe was doing this, Belgrade and Pristina, about two, three years ago, started gingerly tiptoeing around the idea that, okay, how are we going to solve this? And they started exploring the idea that they would swap territory, part of a comprehensive deal where they would settle all their remaining differences. And word of this very quickly got out was greeted very, very negatively in certain parts of the European Union. And for other reasons, it just fell through. 
And then last year, they said, okay, well, Europe was cold to this. Let's try the Trump administration. And John Bolton was quite open to the idea. And there was a kind of Keystone Cops operation that essentially fell through because of the lack of capacity in the Trump administration and sort of fatal lack of trust between Belgrade and Pristina. They didn't have what it took to go all the way. And so now we're back where we started, in a way. We're back to a Europe-led dialogue that is just marking time. They show up for meetings, nothing happens, they go home. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and Hugh Pope and I are talking to Marco Prelitz about the new Crisis Group report relaunching the Kosovo-Serbia dialogue. What's wrong with this status quo? You've talked about borders being in place and good. Why can't things just carry on as they are? Well, it's like a chronic disease. It's unpleasant. Okay, so it hampers you. And it always has the potential to stop being chronic and become acute. Okay, to go into a crisis. So the chronic part is it is corrosive for Kosovo and for Serbia to a lesser extent. We shouldn't forget that. Because there's always this extremely emotive issue involving national honor, prestige, that you can, that any Kosovo politician can use to bolster their, their bona fides and to attack their rivals as, as traitors to the national cause. So it just kind of poisons the discourse. It's always tempting. I mean, Kosovo is having an election campaign right now. Okay. They're having an election in March and one of the smaller parties just mooted the idea that, well, maybe we want to have a union with Albania. That is very destabilizing, but, and it tends to come up in election campaign because you want to get all the mileage out of that as you can. It's also the case that Serbia still has a presence in Kosovo that has gone shape shifted various times over the years, but they run institutions on the territory of this other country. So they used to run courts, they used to have cops, they still employ a huge number of people, they have vestigial municipal governments. That is irritating to Kosovo, as it would be to any other country. There's a whole international component. There's a reason we have an international system. There's a reason we have a UN and International Court of Justice, International Criminal Court, Permanent Court of Arbitration, World Trade Organization, all these nice things that Kosovo can't be in. And then there's the persistent danger that someday someone could decide to take this cold uh, conflict and make it hot. Marco, you've, you've painted a picture of quite a lot of normalization, despite the sentiments that you say can be aroused. When you say that someone can wake the sleeping monster and, and restart the war, what do you mean? Surely people have seen it all in the Balkans and just don't want to go back there. Well, the thing is, it wouldn't necessarily be like the wars that we remember from TV in places like Bosnia, because a lot of ethnic homogenization has already taken place. So it's pretty easy to imagine is, and this I think is the most likely scenario, if things go wrong, I'm not saying it's likely to happen, but if something is going to go wrong, it's probably going to be this way. In northern Kosovo, which is very, very heavily Serb and is next to Serbia, Serbia could very easily, they could do this tomorrow if they wanted to, just say, okay, guys, break out of the Kosovo institutions, we're setting up our institutions, and now this is Serbia again. And there's very little anyone could do about that. Okay, NATO has a small presence there, but without getting into too much detail, that's something that they could do. There's no one to ethnically cleanse. I mean, there's a couple of Albanian villages up there. They've been there throughout. The issue is more in southern Kosovo. There are a lot of sort of leopard-spotted Serbian enclaves and villages of various sizes. Those, Serbia could not break away because they're far away. And on the other hand, though, they would be fair game for angry people in Kosovo to take their frustrations out on. As has happened in 2004, there was an explosion of a kind of pogrom against Serbs, and including against some of the churches, uh, tragically. That could happen. 
So do the Kosovars and the Serbians want to resolve this or do they want to win, right? Is there any appetite for compromise and how much does that align with the process European countries have been driving with what the United States tried to do? That is a big, big question. It's a great question. And I don't think that anyone really knows the answer. So I'm going to speculate. I'm going to give you informed speculation. Okay. I think for Kosovo, the issue is everyone knows everyone in a position of responsibility. Okay. So there's crazy people who think in Serbia who think we're going to get it back. We'll wait a hundred years. The EU will fall apart. America will be a third rate power. Russia and China will rule the world and we'll get Kosovo back. Okay. Ignore that. People in responsible positions know that the space of possible options is much, much smaller and it only really includes an independent Kosovo. So the only question is, how do you get there? And here the big debate is, does anything change or not? Okay. Is the end game Serbia basically saying, we take it all back, we just recognize you the way you are, and we don't get anything in return? Or do we get something in return? That's the big debate. And that is a debate that runs through both the EU and the United States. So there are people on both sides of that. They could get one of two things. They could get a piece of territory, either unilaterally or reciprocated with a trade, or, and that would basically be talking about part of northern Kosovo for part of what's called the Presovo Valley in southern Serbia, or they could get a different status for, and this is something that we at Crisis Group have recommended a number of times because it's something that is done a lot in the European Union, a lot of experience with it, and it works well, where they would have an autonomy status as an autonomous entity within Kosovo. So those are the two main areas where, where there could be an additional compromise over and above what already exists. The people who say, no, Serbia's just got to accept reality and they're not going to get any of that, they would say what Serbia would get is membership in the European Union. They would get membership in this big club. That has its own problems because right now it is true that Kosovo and Serbia's refusal to recognize Kosovo is slowing down Serbia's accession, but there's a ton of things they have to do in terms of building up a clean government, a functioning market economy, economy, rule of law, clean environment. This is a huge, huge project. And even once they do that, the EU has got to be politically willing to accept more members, which is not obvious right now. So that prize is question mark on top of it. Let's put it that way. Marco, there have been a lot of question marks in this conversation, and yet you have been working for decades on the former Yugoslavia, the Balkans. Tell us a little about your contacts on the ground that give you hope that this can be resolved, that you that give you the energy to keep writing these great reports that we keep publishing. I guess I kind of like people down there. I think it's been hard for all of us past year not to be able to travel and be in the field. Uh, we're all field people uh, to one extent or another. There's just something you get from talking to people face to face that you don't get over Zoom. Partly it's their people who don't have Zoom okay, that you talk to. And also it's because the Balkans are very paranoid and um, people will not tell you everything that they would otherwise tell you in a cafe if they're having to talk from their from their office. But I guess I just have an affection for the people there and I've seen how they have changed as we have all changed and grown as we have all grown over the years and come to accept one another for the most part. I mean, there are still people there who are deeply intolerant. Hate is not too strong a word. There are people there who hate the other. But there are also people who have been living together more or less peacefully. It's good to watch. How much interaction is there? You look at some of these other conflicts and breakaways. You look, for instance, at the Karabakh conflict, and you've got two populations that have almost no contact with one another. This is different. Can you describe that? It's really variable. There are people who have almost no or no contact across the ethnic line and whose parents have had no contact across the ethnic line. 
So this is mainly in northern Kosovo. When I used to go there, it really felt like the land of the lost, like that old series, like place where Yugoslavia never ceased to exist. It looked like it was stuck in the 1970s. And people acted that way. There are people there who had never spoken to an Albanian. And there are some Albanians who have never, less so, because many of them would have to travel through Serbia okay, in, in the years before it became easy for to fly directly out of Kosovo. Is there interaction? I mean, is there really interaction of a substantial nature that might change people's minds, build a consensus that uh, we can accept living next door to these people under whatever circumstances? There is maybe less than, than you might hope. The last times I was there, there was still a lot of separateness. I remember going, I remember drinking a very nice Kosovo wine made in Kosovo by a Serb farmer. And this was in southern Kosovo. Okay, So he was not in an enclave or anything. He was just living in Kosovo. But you did not see that on the label because he was using a Serbian label and you could not buy it in Kosovo. He would drive it illegally across the border and sell it in Serbia. We actually interviewed him and he said, well, I could sell it here, but nobody would buy it. Nobody would buy it. Nobody wants to buy a Serbian-made wine. So I would just go out of business. I have a little market. And it's not really, it was barely enough to live on. He was also on welfare, Serbian welfare. It would be equally difficult for somebody to market an Albanian product in Serbia. So there is still not a lot of love there. Let's put it that way. Not a lot of love, but we do have a report that lays out how we can move towards cohabitation, at least over time. So we are out of time for this conversation, but I would commend to all of our listeners to check out the report, and it's available on the Crisis Group website titled Relaunching the Kosovo-Serbia Dialogue. Marco, thank you so much for joining us to discuss it. Thanks for having me. Do you read the report? Not only is it on our website, www.crisisgroup.org, you can also follow Marco on Twitter. He's at mprelets, P-R-M-P-R-E-L-E-C, and you can see other things he has to say and keep an eye on us for more on Kosovo, Serbia and other Balkans issues. And you can also follow Crisis Group more generally at, at Crisis Group and, and ourselves on Twitter. I'm Hugh Pope. That's uh, Hugh underscore Pope. And uh, Olia is at Olia Olika. Also check us out on Facebook and Instagram, which are also both at Crisis Group. Also, please do feel free to tweet at us or about what you like and what you don't like in the podcast. We'll always be paying attention. And if you're listening through iTunes, we'd love it if you could give us a rate and a review as well. War and Peace is a partner in a network of Europe-focused podcasts, Europod. Check out a few of the others. And as usual, we'd like to give a big thanks to our producer at Bull Media and to our coordinator, Rebecca Zerihun Asafa, without whom we would never get to the starting line. Our biggest thanks, as always, are to you, our listeners, and we're looking forward to our next conversation with you in about two weeks. Goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.